0: Chapter Fourteen of My Reminiscences by Rabindranath Tagore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: A Journey with My Father. My shaven head, after the sacred thread ceremony, caused me one great anxiety. However, partial Eurasian lads may be to things appertaining to the cow, their reverence for the Brahmin is notoriously lacking. Footnote: the cow and the brahmin are watchwords of modern hindu orthodoxy End of footnote. so that apart from other missiles our shaven heads were sure to be pelted with jeers while i was worrying over this possibility i was one day summoned upstairs to my father how would i like to go with him to the himalayas i was asked away from the bengal academy and off to the himalayas would I like it? Ho! Oh, that I could have rent the skis with a shout! That might have given him some idea of the how. On the day of our leaving home, my father, as was his habit, assembled the whole family in the prayer hall for divine service. After I had taken the dust of the feet of my elders, I got into the carriage with my father. This was the first time in my life that I had a full suit of clothes made for me. My father himself had selected the pattern and colour. A gold-embroidered velvet cap completed my costume. This I carried in my hand, being assailed with misgivings as to its effect in juxtaposition to my hairless head. As I got into the carriage, my father insisted on my wearing it, so I had to put it on. Every time he looked another way, I took it off. Every time I caught his eye it had to resume its proper place my father was very particular in all his arrangements and orderings he disliked leaving things vague or undetermined and never allowed slovenliness or makeshifts he had a well-defined code to regulate his relations with others and theirs with him in this he was different from the generality of his countrymen with the rest of us a little carelessness this way or that did not signify so in our dealings with him we had to be anxiously careful it was not so much the little less or more that he objected to as the failure to be up to the standard my father had also a way of picturing to himself every detail of what he wanted done on the occasion of my ceremonial gathering at which he could not be present he would think out and assign the place for each thing the duty for each member of the family the seat for each guest nothing would escape him after it was all over he would ask each one for a separate account and thus gain a complete impression of the whole for himself so while i was with him on his travels though nothing could induce him to put obstacles in the way of amusing myself as i pleased he left no loophole in the strict rules of conduct which he prescribed for me in other respects our first halt was to be for a few days at Bolpur. Saltya had been there a short time before with his parents. No self-respecting 19th century infant would have credited the account of his travels, which he gave us on his return. But we were different, and we had no opportunity of learning to determine the line between the possible and the impossible. Our Mahabharata and Ramayana gave us no clue to it nor had we then any children's illustrated books to guide us in the way a child should go all the hard and fast laws which govern the world we learnt by knocking up against them satya had told us that unless one was very 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 expert getting into a railway carriage was a terribly dangerous affair the least slip and it was all up then again a fellow had to hold on to his seat with all his might otherwise the jolt at starting was so tremendous there was no telling where one would get thrown off to so when we got to the railway station i was all a quiver so easily did we get into our compartment however that i felt sure the worst was yet to come and when at length we had an absurdly smooth start without any semblance of adventure I felt awfully disappointed. The train sped on, the broad fields with their blue-green border trees and the villages nesting in their shade flew past in a stream of pictures which melted away like a flood of mirages. It was evening when we reached Polpur. As I got into the palanquin I closed my eyes. I wanted to preserve the whole of the wonderful vision. be unfolded before my waking eyes in the morning light. The freshness of the experience would be spoiled, I feared, by incomplete glimpses caught in the vagueness of the dusk. When I woke at dawn, my heart was thrilling tremulously as I stepped outside. My predecessor had told me that Bolpur had one feature which was to be found nowhere else in the world. This was the path leading from the main buildings to the servants' quarters, which, Though not covered over in any way, did not allow a ray of the sun or a drop of rain to touch anybody passing along it. I started to hunt for this wonderful path, but the reader will perhaps not wonder at my failure to find it to this day. Town bred as I was, I had never seen a rice field, and I had a charming portrait of the cowherd boy of whom we had read pictured on the canvas of my imagination. I had heard from Satya that the Bolpur house was surrounded by fields of ripening rice, and that playing in these with the cowherd boys was an everyday affair, of which the plucking, cooking, and eating of the rice was the crowning feature. I eagerly looked about me, but where? Oh, where was the rice field on all the barren hearth? Cowherd boys there might have been somewhere about, yet how to distinguish them from any other boys? that was the question however it did not take me long to get over what i could not see what i did see was quite enough there was no servant rule here and the only ring which encircled me was the blue of the horizon which the presiding goddess of these solitudes had drawn round them within this i was free to move about as i chose though i was yet a mere child my father did not place any restriction on my wanderings in the hollows of the sandy soil the rain water had ploughed deep furrows carving out miniature mountain ranges full of red gravel and pebbles of various shapes through which ran tiny streams revealing the geography of lilliput from this region i would gather in the lap of my tunic many curious pieces of stone and take the collection to my father he never made light of my labours. On the contrary, he waxed enthusiastic. "'How wonderful!' he exclaimed. "'Where did you get all these?' "'There are many, many more, thousands and thousands. I burst out. I could bring as many every day. That would be nice,' he replied. "'Why not decorate my little hill with them?' An attempt had been made to dig a tank in the garden. But the subsoil water proving too low it had been abandoned unfinished with the excavated earth piled up into a hillock. on the top of this height my father used to sit for his morning prayer and as he sat the sun would rise at the edge of the undulating expanse which stretched away to the eastern horizon in front of him this was the hill he asked me to decorate i was very troubled on leaving bolpur that I could not carry away with me my store of stones. It is still difficult for me to realize that I have no absolute claim to keep up a close relationship with things, merely because I have gathered them together. If my fate had granted me the prayer which I had pressed with such insistence, and undertaken that I should carry this load of stones about with me for ever, then I should scarcely have had the hardihood to laugh at it today. In one of the ravines, I came upon a hollow full of spring water, which overflowed as a little rivulet, where sported tiny fish battling their way up the current. I have found such a lovely spring," I told my father. Couldn't we get our bathing and drinking water from there? The very thing, he agreed, sharing my rapture, and gave orders for our water supply to be drawn out from that spring. I was never tired of roaming about among those miniature hills and dales, in hopes of lighting on something never known before. I was the living stone of this undiscovered land, which looked as if seen through the wrong end of a telescope. Everything there—the dwarf-date palms, the scrubby wild plums, and the stunted jambolans—was in keeping with the miniature mountain ranges, the little rivulet, and the tiny fish I had discovered. Probably in order to teach me to be careful, my father placed a little small change in my charge and required me to keep an account of it. He also entrusted me with the duty of winding his valuable gold watch for him. He overlooked the risk of damage in his desire to train me to sense of responsibility. When we went out together for our morning walk, he would ask me to give alms to any beggars we came across but i never could render him a proper account at the end of it one day my balance was larger than the account warranted i really must make you my cashier observed my father money seems to have a way of growing in your hands that watch of his i wound up with such infatigable zeal that it had very soon to be sent to the watchmakers in calcutta i am reminded of the time when later in life I was appointed to manage the estate, and I had to lay before my father, owing to his failing eyesight, a statement of our accounts on the second or third of every month. I at first to read out the totals under head, and if he had any doubts on any point, he would ask for the details. If I had made any attempt to slur over or keep out of sight any item which I feared he would not like, it was sure to come out so these first few days of the month were very anxious ones for me as i have said my father had the habit of keeping everything clearly before his mind whether figures of accounts or ceremonial arrangements or additions or alterations to property he had never seen the new prayer-hall built at bolpur and yet he was familiar with every detail of it from questioning those who came to see him after a visit to bolpur He had an extraordinary memory, and when once he got hold of a fact, it never escaped him. My father had marked his favourite verses in his copy of the Bhagavad Gita. He asked me to copy these out with their translation for him, at home, I had been a boy of no account. But here, when these important functions were entrusted to me, I felt the glory of the situation. By this time I was rid of my blue manuscript book, and had got hold of a bound volume of one of Lett's diaries. I now saw to it that my poetising should not lack any of the dignity of outward circumstance. It was not only a case of writing poems, but of holding myself forth as a poet before my own imagination. So when I wrote poetry at Bulpur, I loved to do it sprawling under a young coconut palm this seemed to me the true poetic way resting this on the hard unturfed gravel in the burning heat of the day i composed a martial ballad on the defeat of king prithvi in spite of the superabundance of its martial spirit it could not escape an early death the bound volume of let's diary has now followed the way of its elder sister the blue manuscript book leaving no address behind we left Bolpur and making short halts, on the way at Sahebjang, Dinapur, Allahabad, and Kanpur, we stopped at last at Amrista. An incident on the way remains engraved on my memory. The train had stopped at some big station. The ticket examiner came and punched our tickets. He looked at me, curiously, as if he had some doubt, which he did not care to express. He went off, and came back with a companion. Both of them fidgeted about for a time near the door of our compartment, and then again retired. At last came the station-master himself. He looked at my half-ticket, and then asked, ''Is not the boy over twelve?'' ''No,'' said my father. ''I was only eleven, but looked older than my age.'' ''You must pay the full fare for him,'' said the station-master. My father's eyes flashed as, without a word, he took out a currency note from his box and handed it to the station-master. When they brought my father his change, he flung it disdainfully back at them, while the station-master stood abashed at this exposure of the meanness of his implied doubt. The golden temple of Amristo comes back to me like a dream. Many a morning have I accompanied my father to this Gurudarbar of the Sikhs in the middle of the lake. There the sacred chanting resounds continually. My father, seated amidst the throng of worshippers, would sometimes add his voice to the hymn of praise, and finding a stranger joining in their devotions, they would wax enthusiastically cordial, and we would return loaded with sanctified offerings of sugar crystals and other sweets. One day my father invited, one of the chanting choir to our base and got him to sing us some of their sacred songs the man went away probably more than satisfied with the reward he received the result was that we had to take stern measures of self-defence such an insistent army of singers invaded us when they found our house impregnable the musicians began to waylay us in the streets and as we went on our walk in the morning Every now and then would appear the tambura, footnote, an instrument on which the keynote is strummed to accompany singing, and a footnote, slung over a shoulder. At which we felt like game birds at the sight of the muzzle of the hunter's gun. Indeed, so wary did we become that the twang of the tambura from a distance scared us away and utterly failed to bag us when evening fell my father would sit out in the veranda facing the garden i would be summoned to sing to him the moon has risen its beams passing through the trees have fallen on the veranda floor i am singing in the beghuha mode O oh, companion in the darkest passage of life my father with a bowed head and clasped hands is intently listening I can recall this evening scene even now. I have told of my father's amusement on hearing from Srikantha Babu of my maiden attempt at a devotional poem. I am reminded how, later, I had my recompense. On the occasion of one of our mark festivals, several of the hymns were of my composition. One of them was, The eye sees thee not, Who art the pupil of every eye? My father was then bedridden at Chinsura. He sent for me and my brother Jyoti. He asked my brother to accompany me on the harmonium, and got me to sing all my hymns one after the other. Some of them I had to sing twice over. When I had finished, he said, If the king of the country had known the language and could appreciate its literature, he would doubtless have rewarded the poet, since that is not so i suppose i must do it with which he handed me a cheque my father had brought with him some volumes of the peter parley series from which to teach me he selected the life of benjamin franklin to begin with he thought it would read like a story-book and be both entertaining and instructive but he found out his mistake soon after we began it benjamin franklin was too much business-like a person The narrowness of his calculated morality disgusted my father. In some cases, he would get so impatient at the worldly prudence of Franklin that he could not help using strong words of denunciation. Before this, I had nothing to do with Sanskrit beyond getting some rules of grammar by rote. My father started me on second Sanskrit reader at one bound, leaving me to learn declensions as we went on. The advance I had made in Bengali footnote, A large portion of words in the literary Bengali are derived unchanged from the Sanskrit. End of footnote, stood me in good stead. My father also encouraged me to try Sanskrit composition from the very outset. With the vocabulary acquired from my Sanskrit reader, I built up grandiose compound words with a proper sprinkling of sonorous hymns and ends, making altogether a most diabolical medley of the language of the gods but my father never scoffed at my temerity then there were the readings from proctor's popular astronomy which my father explained to me in easy language and which i then rendered into bengali among the books which my father had brought for his own use my attention would be mostly attracted By a ten or twelve volume edition of Gibbon's Rome, they looked remarkably dry. Being a boy, I thought, I am helpless and read many books because I have to. But why would a grown up person who need not read unless he pleases bother himself so? End of chapter fourteen. Read by Lambda.